going today. Let's pray together. We're going to be in Acts uh, chapter 14 today, and uh, our goal is to make it through most of that chapter. Father, we're grateful for the opportunity to sit, Lord, comfortably under the Word of God. Well, we, that is certainly a great blessing, Lord, that, uh, that we enjoy, that your children, even today in the world, and certainly throughout history, have not always had the privilege of enjoying. And so, Lord, uh, in a sense, we, we do want to take advantage of it uh, because it's been given to us, and we're grateful for it. But give us hearts that are grateful. We pray that you would teach us through your word. We pray that our hearts would be open to receive and to apply and to walk in these things that we're considering today. Bless our brothers and sisters that couldn't be with us here today, Lord, that are struggling with various things or sick or uh, life circumstances. We ask that your spirit would minister to their hearts even afar. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we're back in Acts chapter 14. You recall, hopefully, Acts chapter 13 and 14 are going to record for us the first missionary journey of the Apostle Paul. Uh, it, that's kind of become the name after the fact, because when they set out, it seems that Barnabas was kind of the leader, and in some respects you might say it's the first missionary journey of Barnabas, but as time went on, Paul becomes the de facto leader. Remember, the trip was a three-year-long trip, and it set out from the city of Antioch, Syrian Antioch, there's a lot of Antiochs in the Bible, Syrian Antioch, which is about 100 miles north of Jerusalem. It set out from there, and it began to make its way to the various places it was going to go. It was a three-year journey that Paul and Barnabas and initially a fellow by the name of Mark were on. And so they leave Syrian Antioch. That's their sending church, so to speak. They make their way to that island, and they travel all the way through the island of Cyprus, as we learned and we saw. And then from Cyprus, they make it to the mainland, Asia, Europe, kind of right where those two converge. And they make their way there to what today we call Turkey. And there they went to a place called Pamphylia, then they went to a place called Antioch, and then they went on to Iconium. So I think we have a map of that. Can we throw that up just to kind of get a picture of where these places are? There are no maps today. In your mind, picture just places. That's where they're going. So anyway, you know where Turkey is. You guys studied eighth grade geography, um, some of you. And uh, you have an idea of where Turkey is. So that's where they're at at this particular point in time. Now, all of those places that I've just mentioned, coming from Syrian Antioch, going through Cyprus, hitting to Pamphylia, hitting the other Antioch, and so on, all of those places are the first half, if you will, the missionary journey. Maybe not chronologically, but it's the first half of the journey. And they, they are all recorded for us in chapter 13. Chapter 14 is going to look at the second half of the journey. And before getting there, look at verse 51, one of the last verses of chapter 13. It says this, But they shook off the dust from their feet against them, and they went to Iconium. Now, if you were with us two weeks ago, you know the context. But the context is sort of this little problem that they had in the last city that they were at, in that city of Antioch. And the them is explained to us in verse 50. So go back one more verse, and it says, But the Jews, that's the them, incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city, stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and drove them out of the district. So they're in what is called Antioch Poseidon, 
They're there in that city. They've been there for a little, for a length of time, a period of time. Things are going relatively well. People are responding. They went into the synagogue. They taught there. They're out in the streets, essentially. They're teaching. People are responding. Good things are happening. And then there are, there is an opposition, a group that is stirred up or is going to go and stir up some people. And we saw there that that is what forced, as it says in verse 50, and it drove them out of the district. That's what's going to force Paul and Barnabas to move on to the next city, the city of Iconium. Now, Iconium is about 60 miles, 70 miles. That's a lot. Even today, that would be a lot. 60 or 70 miles east, heading kind of back toward the area of Israel. It's about 60 or 70 miles to the east of Antioch. And, and, and like Antioch, it was located in the region of Galatia. And so remember, there are cities within these regions. And we, a lot of us are familiar with the region of Galatia because we know the book uh, written to the Galatians. And chapter 14 is going to now begin in that city. So we're in the region of Galatia in the city of Iconium. And here we go, verse 1. Now at Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue, and they spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles, and they poisoned their minds against the brothers. And so they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews, and some with the apostles. And when an attempt was made by both Jews and Gentiles, by Gentiles and Jews, with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and they fled to Lystra and to Derbe, cities of Lyconia, and to the surrounding country, and there they continued to preach the gospel. So as was Paul and Barnabas's typical custom, they come into this new city, they come into Iconium, and they look for a synagogue. Uh, the rules were 20 Jews in town, 20, I think it was 20 male Jews in town required that a synagogue of some sorts be built. And so they head off there into this particular synagogue. So there was at least 20 Jews in that town. Paul and Barnabas sit out in the audience. It was more of like a rectangle type of room or a U-shaped seating area. They sat out there in the audience and the time came. They, they did some prayers. They did some reading of the Old Testament. They did some, in like the historical Old Testament. They did some of the Psalms. And then the leaders of the synagogue, not necessarily the pastor or the rabbi, but more like the janitor of the synagogue, opened the floor to whoever might like to speak. And for whatever reason, people knew that Paul and Barnabas would be ready to go if asked. Maybe they, they wore some of their priestly garbs or whatever it might be, but it was known that they would be ready to go. And so, sirs, would you like to speak? And Paul said, oh, no, sure, I'd be happy to. And so Paul takes the floor. And he begins to speak, and he's done it in every one of these cities. We've seen it three times already now uh, in, on this missionary journey that when they came into a town, they went into the synagogue, uh, and they used that as an opportunity to explain Jesus to the audience there. And so once more, there they are in this new synagogue. And once more, the Lord blessed Paul and uh, Barnabas's efforts. And so we see there in, at the end of verse 1, it says, a great number of both Jews and Greeks believe. Now, there, that tells us a lot of people believe, but it tells us something else as well, because a great number of both Jews and Greeks believe. Remember, Jews and Greeks saw things very, very differently, but what it tells us is that Paul brought one message to all people. 
both the Jews that were there, both the Gentiles that were there, here they're called Greeks in this situation, Paul preached the same thing to both of these groups. And he preached one message to all people. This is the message that Peter spoke of in Acts chapter 4, when Peter said these words, that there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby they must be saved, but the name Christ Jesus. And that's the message now that Paul is bringing to this community, regardless of who's sitting in front of him. This struck me last Sunday. I was in one of the prisons last Sunday, and I had the opportunity to speak to the men. And, you know, I'm sitting out there with these men, and what just sort of came over me, not in some weird sense, but what just sort of like hit me was this message that I'm about to bring is the same message that I have had the opportunity, and a lot of you as well, to go all over the world and share. And so whether we're talking to the highest folks of the society or the lowest folks of society or people from this culture or people from that culture, what hit me was I was in a hut one time in the Himalayas and I brought the same message that I would bring to you guys because the word of God is true and Jesus Christ is the only way whereby men might be saved. And that message of hope can be preached to anyone. And that's what Paul is bringing to these Gentiles. That's what he's bringing to these Jews. He's bringing a message of hope. Notice also what our friend Luke, who's the author of this, notice also what he says when he says that Paul, Barnabas, they spoke in such a way that a great number believed. And in that, he's pointing to the manner of the delivery of the message. So he's referring not just to what they said, which is obviously important, but also the way that they said it. And I think he's speaking of how they said it with conviction. They spoke it as truth. They spoke with confidence and authority. And so Paul here, Barnabas, whoever one is the primary speaker, probably Paul based on something we read a little later, they're not suggesting that their listeners should consider these things that are being said and maybe respond. They're presenting the gospel in such a way that it is requiring a response. So Paul here, Barnabas, they're not apprehensive with their message at all. They're not tiptoeing around as they talk to these people. I sure hope I don't offend them and their culture. It's very different from mine and all these kind of stuff. They had come, Paul, and remember, Paul was lost, as we all are. But he had come to know the truth, and he presented that message. And he did so in a way that required them to respond one way or the other. So the response, wow, that, that was interesting. Thank you for sharing with us is not an acceptable response that Paul is willing to present to them. You're either with this or you're against this. That's the way that Paul came. He came in such a way. Now, that being said, Paul and Barnabas were not just salesmen with a good sales pitch and a great close. And that's not why people are responding, because they knew how to sort of manipulate the circumstances and bring the person where, I guess I got to say yes. They were men that were led by and dependent upon the Spirit of God. And that's why people are converted. We read in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul said this. Now remember, in Corinth, Corinth was a place that was sort of known for their, their intellect and everyone trying to be smarter than the other person. That, that's sort of a locale. And Paul said this. He said, I was with you in weakness and fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in in demonstration of the spirit and of power so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men but in the power of God 
And so the real secret to the success that Paul and Barnabas were having is that the Spirit of God was working through the words that they were bringing. And that, and that alone would be the secret of any success you and I have as we're trying to communicate the gospel to those that we care about. And so Paul's doing that. Now, unfortunately, as has been uh, the occasion in some of the other cities they ministered to, while there was a sizable number that received their message and believed, there were also those that did not receive their message. And instead of just sort of going away quietly, they instead worked to stir up opposition. And Luke writes of that in verse 2. He says, but the unbelieving Jews, they stirred up the Gentiles, and they poisoned their minds against the brothers. Now, this isn't the response of every Jew in that community. Just a moment ago, he said both Jews and Gentiles believed. But it was the response of some of the Jews in that community. And it was an influential group of Jews that were able, as they influenced others, to poison the minds of the Gentiles against Paul and Barnabas. Notice that. Not against Paul and Barnabas' teaching, to say, but against Paul and Barnabas themselves personally. And sadly, when a person can't be successfully argued against, the attacks oftentimes descend into the personal. And this is what happens here with Paul and Barnabas. You may discover that as you begin to share with other people that the, your argument or your presentation can't be argued against, and so instead you will be the one that is attacked. Paul and Barnabas knew what that was like. Verse 3, so they remained for a long time. Isn't that kind of like not what you expect? Paul and Barnabas were attacked, so they got out of there as quickly as they could. But it says, so they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. So when the ministry got challenging for Paul and Barnabas, they don't take off and head for greener pastures. And notice this, and I tried to point it out a moment ago, it was because the ministry got more challenging and got harder, that they remained there in Iconium. That's the point of Luke's statement when he says, so they remained there for a long time. We might read it this way. The Jews stirred up the Gentiles to oppose Paul and Barnabas, so they remained there for a long time. Because this new church of believers was being harassed and attacked in, in one way or the other, at least verbally, Paul and Barnabas realized we have to remain here. We have to ground these believers and strengthen them in their new faith. It's what these new believers in Iconium needed, and so they were determined to stay there as long as they could. Also look at verse 3. While they're there, the Lord confirms his teaching, and he does so by granting that signs and wonders would be performed through them. We call those miracles. And so verse 3, So they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. And so technically speaking, Paul and Barnabas aren't the ones performing these miracles. The miracles are being performed through them. The Lord is the one performing his miracles. As it reads there in the middle of verse 3, the Lord who bore witness to the word of his grace granted the signs and wonders. So the miracles were done through Paul and Barnabas, but they originated from the Lord. And God in here, God in this, is confirming the divine nature of the message of Paul and Barnabas with the, by, impor, by empowering them to perform divine acts. 
these miracles. And so the miraculous works done would confirm the message that they preached, which is interesting to note. That's not what he did back in Antioch. It's what he does here in Iconium, but not what he did in Antioch. In Antioch, the previous chapter last week where we were, two weeks ago, in Antioch, the Lord brought uh, no miracles. But here in Iconium, he does bring miracles. What does that tell us? It tells us that God works in different ways in, in different locales. And so if we look at Antioch and say, this is the way that God will always work, or we look at Iconium and say, well, this is the way that God will always work, we're going to miss one portion of the scripture. And so we want to be careful that we don't put the Lord in a box of how he must work. He chose to work one way in Antioch. He chose to work a different way in Iconium because the spirit works as the spirit himself decides to work. And what Paul and Barnabas did and what it is ours to do as well is to get in line with what the spirit is doing instead of, you know, just sort of this is how I've decided he's going to work. So verse 4 continues, it says, But the people of the city, they were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some sided with the apostles. The word of God went forth, and the result was a division in the society. And the word of God does that. The word of God, it brings division, almost always. There will be those that respond, and there will be those that reject. And this city was no different. And Paul and Barnabas's job wasn't to freak out and worry about who was accepting and rejecting. It was just to be faithful to bring the word, which they did. Notice also Luke writes, some sided with the Jews and some sided with the apostles. Well, who were the, the apostles? Well, it's Paul and Barnabas that we're referring to. And this is the first time that Paul is referred to as an apostle in our Bibles. Now, it's a title that will be applied to him and used by him on many occasions when he writes the epistles, but it's the first time that the, the term is applied to him outside of that original group of 12. It's now here applied to Paul. We also see that it's applied to Barnabas as well. He's also referred to here as an apostle, a word which simply means a sent one. Paul and Barnabas were sent now, eventually, the opposition against Paul and Barnabas, it becomes so great that they make the decision it's time to move on. So look at verse 5. It says, Now, when an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, Paul and Barnabas learned of it, and they fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lyconia. I mentioned earlier how Iconium was part of Galatia. Lystra and Derbe were part of Lyconia. And so Lyconia is another region in that particular area there. And there, Paul and Barnabas, they decided to hang low so that they wouldn't bring any more trouble upon themselves. That's not what it says. They, they preached basically everywhere that they went, more specifically. And there, they continued to preach the gospel. But they leave Iconium. Sometimes God calls his servants to give their lives for the cause. If you've never done so, I encourage you to work through the book, Fox's Book of Martyrs, and you'll read of believers through, the history, through Christian history, church history, that have given their life for Jesus Christ. And sometimes God calls his servants to give their lives for the cause. Other times, he calls them to run for their lives. 
And that's what the Spirit led Paul and Barnabas to do in this particular circumstance. It was time for them. They had stayed as long as they could, but now it was time for them to get out of Iconium and move on to another locale where they would continue to do the work of the Lord. And so when it became clear that there was a plot to kill them via stoning, Paul and Barnabas escape that city. And as it says there, they went to Lystra and Derbe, neighboring towns. We do have a map of that. Look at that. All right, so Lystra's in red there. Derby is down in green. Iconium is there in blue. And in the top corner there, you can, not corner, but up in the top, you see where Antioch is? That's where we began. We began up in Antioch. We went about 60 miles east and a little bit south to Iconium, about 20 miles south to Lystra, and about uh, 50 or so over to Derby. Um, so they're moving around in this particular area. Um, again, we say neighboring towns, 20 miles away is still pretty far, uh, and that's where they're headed off to. And they're persevering, persevering through difficulty, first in Iconium. But that did not necessarily mean that they had to become martyrs or that it was time for them to become martyrs, one who gives their life for the, for the cause, for the faith. There were times when they did, and Paul did, and Barnabas uh, did as well, gave his life for the cause, but this was not the time. Now, the question then becomes, well, how come this time they escape, but later on in their lives, they don't escape, or they don't even try to escape? They essentially give their lives here. Why? How come at some junctures stand and at other times do not stand? Well, the answer is the same theme that we have been seeing traced through the book of Acts, and that is they followed the Holy Spirit's leading. Because there were times when the Holy Spirit said, you guys need to go. And there were other times where they said, you need to strengthen your legs and you need to stand your ground. But it was the Holy Spirit leading. And Paul and Barnabas here, they're guided by the Holy Spirit to pick up and to go. They enjoyed such an intimate communion with the Lord, with the Holy Spirit, even when kind of there's contradictory types of things to do, and they have done in the past, they were able to discern, now's time to go. And so as it continues, they fled Iconium and they went to Lystra and Derbe, cities in Lyconia. Now, in verse 8, what our friend Luke is going to do is he said they went to Lystra, they went to Derbe. In verse 8, beginning in verse 8, he's going to tell us a story of an event that occurred in Lystra. And so this is what he writes, verse 8. Now at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and he had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking. And Paul looked intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And the man sprang up and he began walking. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices saying in the Lyconian language, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. And Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates. And they wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard of it, they tore their garments and they rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men like you, of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. 
In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without a witness. For he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and with gladness. And even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifices to them. Excuse me. Now we saw back in verse 3, that Paul and Barnabas were used by God to do many miraculous things. But it would be improper to say that Paul and Barnabas were miracle workers, that they traveled around, put up banners, signs and miracles tonight, make sure you're at the city square. It would be, that would be improper to say that. That's not what they were about at all. So they performed miracles from time to time, but really they were teachers, they were preachers. They went into a community, preached the word of God, taught the word of God, and then from time to time, the miracles accompanied their preaching. But again, we saw in Antioch, there were no miracles mentioned taking place in those instances there. So these are teachers. And Luke begins now introducing in this new town, he introduces a man to us, a man in Lystra who was sitting and he was listening to the Apostle Paul speak. Luke tells us that this man was crippled from birth. He gives us some more details that he was unable to walk, and he says that he was never able to walk in all of his life. Luke continues in verse 9, he tells us that this man was listening to Paul. Now, you, you might say it this way, you know, a lot of times we listen to things, and we're like, uh-huh, right, that's good. This man was hearing what Paul was saying. He was dialed in, he was tuned in, and Paul could see it on his face. Paul could see into, if you will, into his heart or into his spirit, and he realized this man has faith to be healed. There was something about the man visibly that Paul realized that he was crippled and unable to walk, and that it looks like it was his entire life that he was unable to do so. And Paul immediately realized this guy has the faith to be healed. Paul has what in another place, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, I think, he has here an instance of what we might call the word of knowledge, or as sometimes it's referred to as a word of wisdom. And a word of knowledge has been defined this way. It's when the Spirit of God provides information to someone about the condition of another person. It's a supernatural insight into what is going on inside of another and what Paul tells us in another place is it's a spiritual gift. And so there's a whole listing of spiritual gifts that can be found, 1 Corinthians 12. One of those is the gift of knowledge. And that's what Paul is experiencing here regarding this man. The Holy Spirit gives Paul insight into the fact that this man has the faith to believe and to be made well. And so Paul responds to that. Remember, he was in tune with what the Spirit was doing and how the Spirit was leading and guiding. And so Paul responds to the Spirit's leading. And we see in verse 10 there, it says that Paul said in a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. There's significance to the fact that it states that he says this in a loud voice. Paul isn't whispering this, perhaps kind of hedging his bet a little. Well, if this doesn't work out, at least no one will hear me and I won't look silly. But Paul says with a loud voice in front of all of those that are here in front of him, stand upright on your feet. And so Paul saw that the man had faith to be healed. Paul also had faith that the man could be healed. 
and he speaks to the man, and he says, stand upright. And Luke writes that the man sprang up, and he began walking. Now, as I'm getting older, if I, I'm seated for a little while, particularly if I'm seated like, like on my leg a little, I have it crossed, it takes me forever to get up and steady myself and not fall. This in and of itself is a miracle that the man could spring up because he had never walked, he had never developed those muscles in his legs, he had never learned how to balance himself or any of these things. And again, Luke points out, he had never walked from, you know, when he was born or when he was young. Or, you know what it says, you read it too. And the fact that he could do so, jump up, stand up, spring up, and walking is a miracle, a true miracle. Now, not surprisingly, the crowd saw that. You'd be amazed, wouldn't you? Some of us here, we, we watch enough TV, we're like, that's fake, or whatever. <laughs> you know what I mean? But they didn't have TV, and so they were like, wow, check it out. Did you see what just happened? And so everyone is amazed. Everyone is uh, exclaiming. And they, they begin to cry out amongst themselves, and one person, and then another, and then another, and the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. So upon seeing this miracle, their immediate conclusion is that the gods had come down and visited them in the likeness of men, Paul and Barnabas. And they begin to chant this. Now, Luke points out that they chanted this in the Lyconian language, different language, a language that Paul and Barnabas were not familiar with. And so they're doing their thing, and Paul and Barnabas are like, well, everyone's excited. You know, here, but they don't know what, so, what specifically they're saying and what level of excitement they're having that the gods have come down and visited. And so they don't fully understand all of this. But these people here in Lyconia, they had just witnessed a miracle. But notice this, and very, very important that we see this here. The miracle that they witnessed didn't change their theology. They still believe the wrong thing. They, now they're believing that the gods have come down and that they're dwelling amongst us. So the miracle in and of itself doesn't change them. And Paul's going to have to teach them in order that they might be changed. Again, the priority of the word of God, not of the signs and the wonders and all of these things that are certainly exciting. These guys, their idea of God had not changed. And so then their logical conclusion, they're pagans with a capital P. That's the religion. They're pagans. And so their logical conclusion is to attribute that work to deity, to a god, or in this case, to gods. And Barnabas, as it says in verse 12, they began to call Zeus. If you have one of the older versions there, it says Jupiter. They began to call Paul Hermes. If you have one of the older versions, it says Mercury. Jupiter and Mercury, they were the names that the Romans used. Uh, the other two, Zeus and Hermes, were the names that the Greek used. But they both described the same things, and that's why our versions say it's slightly different. But they began to call Paul, we'll just say uh, Hermes. They began to call Barnabas Zeus. I don't know what that sounded like in the Lyconian language, if it was similar to the Greek language that Paul knew. But I, I, I have a suspicion that, you know, things are going on. And you know, did he just say Zeus? It sounded like he said Zeus. I remember being in a setting, I told you earlier, I was in uh, Nepal. It chokes me up every time. When I was in Nepal, and I know Kevin and Dan were there and somebody else, Will, I think you were there. And we were in this hut kind of thing, and we just got there. 
and they were introducing, they were just talking, giving like directions to the audience that we didn't need to know in English. And so they were just doing it in, I guess, Nepali is their language. And we're just sitting there kind of like smiling, like we understand, you know, we have no idea what they're talking about. And then all of a sudden, they mentioned the name Kevin Barber. And we knew that. And we're like, did he just say Kevin Barber? I think he did. Or whatever. And I, I'm wondering that. That's what I'm picturing in this here is they're kind of doing their thing in their different language. And all of a sudden, Paul's like, it feels like I keep hearing them say Zeus. Do you hear that? Yeah, and Hermes, right? Yeah, me too. And I'm like, oh, I wonder why they're talking about them. Or whatever. And, and they're just trying to figure this whole thing out. You can imagine the circumstances here. Now, verse 13, the cat's let out of the bag. Here's a dad joke, or the oxen is let out of the bag. Look at verse 13. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, he brought oxen and garlands to the gates, and he wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. It doesn't say this, but it's the context to Paul and Barnabas. And so here comes this oxen, probably a little fright on his face as he knows this is it for him, and the garlands hanging around him and a big old knife that this guy is carrying, this priest is carrying, and then Paul and Barnabas get it. They think we're Zeus and Hermes, Barnabas, and notice their response, verse 14. But when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard it, they tore their garments, they rushed out into the crowd, and they said, men, why are you doing these things? They said, stop. We're also men like you of like nature with you. We bring you good news to turn from these vain things that you're doing to a living God, the God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them. So initially, perhaps Paul and Barnabas could have concluded, well, they're just trying to honor us. They're just trying to be nice to us. But this has crossed the line. And these folks were looking to make sacrificial offerings to Paul and Barnabas as deities. And so the response then is to rip their garments, which is certainly uh, something we see in our Bibles that the Jews would do, but not necessarily something that these Greeks here would have understood. And so maybe there's sort of a joint thing. Paul and Barnabas are ripping their garments for themselves as they're protesting and mourning what is being done in front of them. But maybe even just in a very practical sense, they're tapping their chest here. And as it says, we are men just like you. We're human beings just like you. Why are you doing these things, they say there? We're of like nature with you. They clearly express uh, their protest and sorrow about these things. They say, why are you doing these things? A few moments later, look down. So verse 15, why are you doing these things? About three lines down in my Bible, they say, they say you should turn from these, notice, vain things. And so the, these things that they're doing, worshiping men here, offering these cattle with their flowers draped around their neck to human beings that have come into town and all of that, he calls them vain. Now that word, that's a strong word for people that sincerely believe this. The word vain means devoid of truth. It also means useless or of no purpose. He says, turn from these useless things. Turn from these things of deception. Turn from these things that have no purpose. Paul is pointing out to them, your idolatry, your worship of created things is foolishness. 
But Paul, strong words, yes. But Paul's not afraid to confront, confront this mob that is front of, in front of him with the truth. Because their truth, or what they thought was truth, was in fact devoid of truth. It was useless. And Paul knows that. And so Paul here, very clearly, he does, you can see he doesn't buy into that modern thinking that all routes lead to God and that all that truly matters is a person's sincerity because these guys are really, really sincere. There's only one road that leads to God. And these idolatrous worshipers, they're not on that road. And Paul's strongly pointing that out. And he tells them to turn from it. You need to get off that road and get onto the right road. You need to turn to the true and living God, he says in verse 15, that you should turn from these vain things to a living, the, a living God. And then he says, he kind of explains that God. He says, the one who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. Not some lesser imaginary God that a Paul and a Barnabas would have been. He references there the earth and the sea and the heavens. Those were the exact sorts of things that the, these people would have thought that Zeus would have brought to them or created for them. Paul tells them, now these blessings don't come from Zeus. They come from the living God, the one who lives in heaven. Paul continues, verse 16, he makes a brief statement about God's witness of himself among the nations. Now he says among the nations, some versions might even say among the Gentiles, the people that he's talking to. So <coughs> he says, in past generations, <coughs> he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Excuse me. Yet, he did not leave himself without a witness. For he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and with gladness. Now, what Paul does is he basically declares what the psalmist wrote nearly a thousand years earlier. Psalm 19 says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. And so speaking then to this crowd, Paul says, God did not leave himself without witness. And he speaks of the good ways that God provided for them. Even though they didn't know him, God nonetheless provided for them by giving them rain from heaven and fruitful seasons. God provided for their needs. Paul will talk about that in Romans chapter 1 as well and develop that idea. Verse 18, but even with all of that, the Lyconians, he could barely keep them from offering sacrifices to them. As we see in verse 18, even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people. But it certainly wasn't for a lack of trying on Paul's part. Now, before bringing our time to a close, if you've been with us and you remember the sermons that Paul shared uh, that are recorded for us in, earlier on in this trip, Acts chapter 13, if you compare those sermons with this sermon, now this sermon's only four verses long. He probably talked more than that, but that's what's recorded for us, four verses long. If you compare those sermons, you see there's quite a bit of difference between what he preached in those places in Acts 13 and what he is preaching here in Acts 14. I'll remind you, those sermons in Acts chapter 13 were very scripture-based. Our Old Testament, what we think of as our Old Testament, lots of references to scripture, lots of references to the history of Israel. Here, there is no Old Testament at all that is mentioned. 
unless you count like the creation or something, uh, like you can kind of shoehorn that in there. Well, Genesis 1. And the reason is, is because here, Paul is speaking to a Gentile audience. In those other instances recorded for us, he's speaking in synagogues to Jewish people. And so, rather than making his case from a place that these Gentiles had no knowledge of, he instead starts at a place in which they did have understanding, the creation. It's something that they tried to explain in their religious systems here. These, uh, these pagans understood the concept of creation. And so that's the place that Paul starts. He starts with creation or nature, I think is how it's used here. So that he can then get to the God that was behind all of creation. And so ultimately, he's not changing his message. He's changing his method. And so with the Jews, he tr brings them through the Old Testament. He doesn't do that here with the Gentiles. He goes all the way back to creation, which they would recognize and understand and be familiar with, and he gets to Jesus. But in both places, he's going to get to Jesus. And I think that's important for us because when we share our faith or we attempt to share our faith with others, I think it's important that we take some time to discover the starting point that the person is at by asking some questions. A lot of times we just want to jump in and give our spiel rather than kind of pulling back and, and say, why don't you tell me about yourself, where you come from? Do you have a background of faith or something like that? Tell me about yourself. We're not robots. And when we talk to others about our faith, we have to remember everybody is unique. And everybody has sort of a different starting point and how significant it is, important it is that we find out where they are at and then prayerfully develop the best means to connect with them so that we can influence them. Paul does that here. Verse 19, but Jews came from Antioch and Iconium. Now, how far would you go to follow someone you didn't agree with? A hundred miles here? These guys are traveling all this way, I'm sure, Paul. Great. These people are here. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, notice, they stoned Paul, and they dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. And I thought that was a nice, positive place for us to end this morning. <laughs> I'm serious. <laughs> so that's where we're going to end. It's a cliffhanger. Come on, if you were watching TV and he was lying out there, big bumps on his head, you'd be like, oh, I can't wait till next Thursday. I'm going to watch it. And so you have to come back next week. Let's pray together. Father, a moment ago, we, we saw that Paul and Barnabas became aware of an attack against them. Certainly, you made them aware, and they were able to get out of there. And, and now we close, and Paul is stoned and left for dead. And so, Father, we freely admit that we don't understand your working at all times and how come this way, this time, and that way the next time. But we do trust you. And, Lord, as we look into the word and we see the way that you orchestrate circumstances for your glory and for your good, and oftentimes our good. We rest in that. And so, Father, we, we thank you for the things that we've considered today. We pray that, Lord, like seed, it would go down into the deep places of our hearts and it would settle in there and it would begin to do 
what seed is meant to do in good soil. It would begin to grow up and bear fruit. And so, Lord, nothing profound today that we've considered. Just good, solid meat for us to take in that our walks might be built upon. And so bless your word, we pray in Jesus' name.